Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science. I'm Ryan Salisbury. And I'm Peter DeBeer. And today we have on uh, Reed uh, to talk about uh, two of our favorite subjects, anarchism and anime. Um, and today we're talking <laughs> about uh, the anime One Piece, uh, which a lot of people would characterize as an anarchist anime. Hello, Reed. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> yeah, One Piece is my favorite. I've definitely... Uh kind of <laughs> built my some of my like social media online brand around anarchist one piece themes yeah <laughs> maybe is what inspired you to invite me on here yeah i think you might have been the one that inspired me to actually sit down and watch it because like uh I, I tried to watch it like a little bit of it like years ago my best friend at the time watched it like all the time and i was like oh well it must be good if he's watching it like all day every day <laughs> and uh yeah, I tried it and I was like, oh, well, it kind of looks weird and I don't know if I like it. But then, um, yeah, you or maybe someone else was like, oh, yeah, you should watch it because they're like anarchist pirates. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> I guess I'm the odd one out here today having never watched a single episode of One Piece. Mm. I, I, I feel kind of <laughs> left out now. Yeah, why well, haven't you devoted hundreds of hours of your life to watch an anime, Peter? Come on. Come on! Not showing yeah. any dedication to the podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm feeling, I'm feeling horrible about that. As is, the guilt trip is not helping. Thanks. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll just give a brief explanation for those who don't know. One Piece is a very long-running manga series. It's been running about 15 years. Uh, it's about a super-powered young pirate in an ocean world who's trying to become the pirate king. Um, most of the story thus far involves. Uh, arriving at different places that are ruled over by a brutal oppressor and Luffy getting mad about it and punching them a lot until they stop uh, brutalizing people. <laughs> uh, there's also a militaristic uh, world-dominating government that upholds a, a cruel slave-owning aristocracy, often with wanton violence or even genocide. Um, th that's the basic story. Um, anything that you think wow. I should add to that description, Reed? Uh, I think that's good for now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, there's, it's a, yeah, it's like a 15 year long manga. So there's plenty of details <laughs> that you could get into. Yeah. And you'll hear this a lot in, if you watch any like reviews of it, but, uh, some people I mean, are 20 years, pardon me. Oh, it's 20 years. Okay. Yeah. Some people are put yeah. off by the length. Uh, right now they're up to chapter like 900, 912 or something in the, in the manga. 14. Nine, oh, 9.14, yeah. Yeah, I tried to catch up this morning, and I kept getting distracted. Um, yeah. but uh, Okay, so now we know why I haven't watched this yet, because I I get, like, two hours of free time a week, and I and I dedicate that to this podcast. <laughs> like, how the hell am I going to put 20 years of anime in? <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, what a lot of reviewers point out is, like, the, the length is actually an asset, to the series because the world is like so rich and like full so the length is actually good and if you're reading the manga it's actually not it, it doesn't take that long to to read through it yeah i got i got back into one piece maybe like two or three years ago when i spent about a month catching up from catching up on the manga from where i had left it off as a kid like you know, some hundreds of chapters back. <laughs> and yeah. since then, I've, I've, I've uh, kind of like 
been able to enjoy following it on like a weekly release schedule whenever somebody puts up the bootleg like <laughs> translations of the scans of a Korean release of it online. <laughs> um, that's that's mostly been how I I, I consume One Piece since yeah. uh, since then. Okay, so um, I'll just jump into some of the questions uh, that I wanted to talk about. Uh, and first, is Luffy anarchist? Is Luffy anarchist? Um, I don't think Luffy really thinks he's anything, um, but he's he's not an ideological person. But I would say his actions in the series, the way he's characterized, have a very anarchistic bent to them. If anything, I would say he's kind of an egoist anarchist. <laughs> That's um, what I was thinking, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it it, it kind of comes down to like the few bits of ideology that he does ever express, I think, kind of hinted this. Um, and I'll say, too, I, I doubt that Eiichiro Oda really knows or cares that much about anarchism, actually. <laughs> I think so. It's just a um, it's a, you know, kind of like speculation but that could be made on sort of his character um you know but uh yeah his couple of uh ideological conceptions he does express in the show are like on the idea of what the pirate king is um um on sort of the the nature of his nakama which is kind of japanese for comrades Mm -hmm. his crew and also, sort of his conception of uh, heroism or anti-heroism, I think, are kind of the three strongest points for that. Um, and just his generally, like, anti-authoritarian um, kind of mindset. So, uh, so I, I, I don't uh, remember this exactly. What, what does Luffy think the Pirate King is? Or what does he say that the Pirate King is? Yeah, so it it's sort of, like, expressed when he's talking with his two brothers about how, you know, they want to be pirate king and mm-hmm. they really talk about it as the pirate king is the freest person on the sea not who has the most treasure most treasure or the most followers um, but the person who can go anywhere in the world and do whatever they want um, so that's a very interesting that that's sort of that goal is always coming into conflict with all the other sort of pirates and adversaries he meets pirates mm-hmm. who are obsessed with uh, getting treasure or getting um large followers uh large armies of followers like um whitebeard or big mom some of the yonko characters who are obsessed with controlling territory and having followers or being the most powerful whereas and it's it's sort of like luffy's kind of like guiding star throughout the series that allows him to kind of like take on and uh beat these really powerful antagonists um yeah it seems like he's it seems like most of them like they want the one piece. They want the treasure of the pirate king, but they don't want to be the pirate king. Like I can't think of anyone yeah, that really yeah. expresses an interest in being the pirate king, other than like. Or they want the. Uh, they want like Luffy. yeah. They want like the respect, or like the notoriety or the power of being yeah. the pirate king, but they're not actually that interested in the freedom part. Right. Yeah, and um, yeah, I was thinking about the question: is is the pirate king like a literal king? Like, is he a monarch? Um, and I've, you know, I saw, I think you commented this and maybe some other people um, when I was, you know, reading different opinions on it that, you know, the Pirate King is like the freest person on the seas. Um, mm-hmm. 
But you know, we we haven't seen Gold Roger like uh, as a character much, other than like his execution and maybe like a brief glimpse here and there. So we don't know like yeah how he actually treated people. Um, yeah, I, it's kind of unknown. It's it's just what we've been able to like glean through uh, Luffy's crew meeting former members of his crew along their journey. Right. And those people saying that uh, Luffy's crew reminds them of uh, Roger's crew. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there's probably a yeah. So there's probably some because Luffy in the story, for those who don't know, like, um, he doesn't treat his crew like underlings. Um, and sometimes they treat him like an underling. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They'll, he's they'll, such an idiot. Yeah. He is. He's a huge dumbass. So like, he'll do something that's obviously stupid, you know, to anyone with normal sense. Um, but the main reason that he's like the captain is just cause he's such a stubborn dumbass that he, he just does whatever he wants. And people are like, well, I guess we have to follow him and <laughs> keep him out of trouble. <laughs> yeah. He, he's the leader in the sense that he leads them all into danger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we'll tip <laughs> and we'll typically be the last person to like, uh, take a punch, uh, to let everybody else get out. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, sorry, I'm going to jump in here ahead. for a second. Obviously, um, having having limited understanding of of the anime or the manga, um, I and I'm look I'm listening to all of this and I'm like, uh, well, you know, someone who is the freest person around anywhere, uh, that's a very good description of a monarch. That's, yeah, that's literally like if you have the the the, the power to go wherever you want whenever you want mm-hmm. for whatever reason you want that that's very much the description of a monarch well so, I, I don't know if i would agree that that's the description of a monarch like a monarch oh, is uh, is the freest person in like in a, a state but what makes them the monarch is their ability to command you know this army of subordinates that they have under them I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and I think like the Pirate King is really well contrasted to like the sort of the uh, the uh, Celestial Dragon World Noble characters in the mm-hmm. series because they're also they're like legally like de jure the freest pers- people in the world who can who have no rules that apply to them. They can take slaves, kill people whoever whenever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, complete arbitrary rule. Um, you know, um, based on a based on hereditary uh, inheritance. Yeah, so like in um, some of the newer, newest chapters, um, in chapter 907, they say the world government is legitimized in part because there's no single king. So they, they like built this throne and they have uh, 20 weapons around the throne that represent the 20 governments that formed the world government um, 800 years prior to the show or the story. And um, they leave the throne empty because they say there's no single king. And if, if it's occupied, that means there's not peace anymore. But then... They know, immediately subvert it. <laughs> right, right. They immediately subvert it because there's there's a council of five like elder nobles that rule everything. And uh, like literally a, like a few pages after that, um, one of the characters says the, the celestial dragons, the, the world nobles, are, are gods... They get whatever they want, in, including taking a princess of a lower kingdom as a slave. And mm-hmm. if anyone resisted, the Marines, the the like world military, would basically carry out a genocide of the the kingdom that the 
the princess rules over as punishment. Yeah. <laughs> and you could also say, you know, like, uh, I think Luffy in the show is one of the only, uh, only characters shown to have ever actually just attacked a celestial dragon and yeah. get away. You know, he was trying to take one of their friends, uh, as a slave back in the Sabandi archipelago arc. Mm. And <laughs> Luffy and Luffy style was like, Oh, you know, punch this guy in the face. Um, uh, <laughs> Which was just like completely unprecedented. No one had ever done that because that means you get an admiral and an entire like navy fleet called down on you to destroy the entire island if yeah. if you do that. And Luffy well, is just like, world nobility is a spook. So this guy's bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the other kind of anarchism that I think Luffy is kind of close to though is is uh, mutualism because. Um, at the end of, the, I mean, this is gonna be spoilers, but. I don't think it's too bad, you know, just read the story. It's still enjoyable, even if you know what happens. Um, at the end of the Dress Rosa arc, there were seven uh, pirate fleets that uh, tried to pledge themselves as Luffy's subordinates. They were, like, ready to go. Like, yeah, just, yeah. you know, drink the sake and we'll do whatever you want. And um, Luffy was basically like, nah, nah, I don't want to do that. Uh, you're not my subordinates. But but if you uh, need my help... Or if I need your help, we can call on each other to help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a really great scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's typical, like, Luffy being very blunt and not wanting to deal with the responsibility of uh, being in charge of a bunch of people. Yeah, I almost wonder if it's more of that than he's, like, actually, like, opposed to the, you know, subordinate relationship that, like... He just doesn't want to do it. He does, he's he's so carefree well, that's, that he that's doesn't like, want to care about it. That's like what's so great about uh, Luffy's character that makes him work in the show is like he has these moments of like kind of like brutal honesty and clarity and stuff like like this one where he's just like you can't quite tell if he's actually just being really smart or he's just being <laughs> really like selfish. <laughs> um, another yeah, he's, really good he's one like that, that uh, the kung fu movie trope of like the the old sage that seems crazy. Oh, there's one like that. I think is very, um, another sort of like one of my main bits of evidence that like, Oh, Luffy's an anarchist kind of once, uh, is where he was talking with, uh, I think Shira Hoshi, the mermaid princess character yeah. about, uh, uh, she, you know, she was referring to him as a hero and he was like, no, 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 I'm not a hero. A hero is somebody who, saves the day and gets the meat and then has to share the meat with everybody. I just want to eat the meat. <laughs> I don't want to give it to anybody else. I'm not a hero. Uh, that, that's, that's I think, my main bit of evidence for Luffy's egoism. <laughs> he does not want... He's not altruistic. He doesn't want to help people necessarily. Um, he just wants to eat the meat. And um, if anybody gets in his way, they're going down. And uh, if anybody... Uh, you know, gets in the way of his friends or hurts them, they're going down. But generally, he's very, very opposed to just sort of like being a charity kind of person. And he, he, he only helps people who uh, also are like helping themselves. Yeah, there's even um, that line from Sterner. Um, I'm, I'm trying to look it up. Oh yeah, you are nothing but my food, even as I too am fed upon and <laughs> turned to be to use by you. Yeah, straight out of story. Reminds me. Yeah, it reminds me of this scene where like this big dragon attacks him, and he's just like, "Oh, cool lunch," and then kills the dragon and eats him. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, it's a very, he has he has a lot of very like Goku kind of character traits like that. Yeah, Oda yeah. really based him off of uh, Toriyama's work. Yeah. Um. So there's uh, in One Piece. Um. For those who haven't seen it, there's actually a lot of um stories in it. Even if Eishiro isn't political himself, he writes stories that strongly resemble like political realities in our current world. The one that jumps out at me the most is. Uh, the Skypia arc, which is like where I first really took notice of the politics aspect of One Piece. Um, so my question for you, Reed, is is a one state solution for Skypia a good idea? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that I'm, if I'm thinking back to like the resolution of that one, it seemed like that's kind of where it was headed in terms of like uh, basically taking down this. Uh, extremely hierarchical lightning god character <laughs> ruling the island um, who is kind of like, you know, creating all this division and conflict and allowing people to finally actually like work out their differences. And it, that was a very, really interesting one too, because uh, basically all the uh, formerly terrestrial inhabitants of Skypia uh, ended up there on accident. Like they were forced to live there, which has an interesting kind of like, uh, parallel too, if you think about it, they were forced there by some weird like natural catastrophe or whatever, where their half of an island just like launched up into the sky one day. But right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and the those characters like strongly, I mean, were supposed to resemble Native Americans. So I think it was extra interesting there that like they have this story that it's basically like a settler colony, um, and the Native American you know, characters were like forced into sort of a ghetto. Um, and then, you know, once, once the war between them and the settlers was resolved, you know, they were kind of like, well, do we have to leave? And they're like, well, where would we go? <laughs> like, are, we can't go back to where we came from because, you know, we live, we've been living here for generations. So it's, I, it's like kind of a similar situation here where like the U S started as a settler colony and the land definitely like rightfully belongs to the indigenous people of the U of America. But at the same time, like the people that have been living here for, you know, 400 plus years can't, we can't just like go back to Europe. Right, and it, the, the that whole um, arc kind of points to the way that like uh, those those relationships are really distorted by like hierarchical authority turning people against each other who might otherwise be able to like resolve their differences and right, talk right. it out. Um, another really interesting uh, like I think like arc for like geopolitics is uh, the Alabasta one. Uh-huh. Uh, because <laughs> that one, the conflict is like um, there. There's Crocodile, who's one of the uh, the seven warlords, basically privateer pirates hired by the government to suppress other pirates. Um, who's uh, basically like uh, kind of like infiltrated the country with his like private intelligence firm, um, mm-hmm. the Baroque Works. They're basically like a mercenary company, um, <laughs> and. Uh, taken over the country by creating uh, a drought 
using his devil fruit powers and some like secret government weather control technology <laughs> um <laughs> and uh basically convinced the people of the island that the government is controlling the weather to uh prevent rain from falling on poor people's crops and they've started a you know started a rebellion against the uh against the original monarchy of the country um and this is all part of like crocodiles uh plan to <laughs> overthrow them and take sort of take the throne and the the resources of the country because they secretly have a uh an ancient weapon from the uh from the void century that'll allow him to get some kind of you know uh ultimate power or whatever yeah, he's like, uh, he's like Nestle and Infowars smashed together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like it's like um, <laughs> there's just a lot of parallels in that one, like from the conspiracies to the you know like private mercenary companies operating in uh, desert-like environments. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, another interesting one. I I don't have anything written down about this, so I I might flounder on it a little bit, but. Um, the the place that Robin originates from. Um, oh yeah, Big yeah. One. They yeah. they were a bunch of scholars. Oh, Amhara is that what you what do you call it? Oh, Ohara. Ohara. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They were a bunch of scholars studying this this void century. That's like, it's a period of history that's forbidden by the world government to study, and and it's the period that the world government was created. Right. Yeah. S- sort of the lore behind the void centuries. There used to be some ancient kingdom. And then sometime in that period, the kingdom was collapsed or was overthrown and the world government um, and like the 20 noble families that founded it emerged. Um, yeah. Yeah. I but think nobody really knows anything else. I think at some point they said oh. that the world government formed in order to overthrow it, but maybe that's speculation. I don't know. But yeah. anyway, at um, all, yeah, the, yeah, the O'Hara people got too close to the truth basically. And um, the Marines uh, called in a, a buster call, which is basically like an admiral and a huge fleet go and just like wipe out everything. So they uh, they carried out a literal genocide in order to <laughs> prevent people from studying this period of history where, you know, people might find out something that like, I guess, probably delegitimizes the world government. Yeah. And Robin was the sole survivor from that island who. Yeah. Um, carried on her family's knowledge of being able to read the uh and like decrypt the language that the still existing knowledge about that time is written in so that's another really interesting part of the straw hat crew is they've got the one person on their team who can actually figure out what the hell happened back then right so she's she's kind of like rolling with them because they're her friends and also because uh she's sort of like bet on them as being the strongest people who can protect her in her like journey to actually uh, reveal the truth. Right. Um, so another thing that I always uh, love about One Piece is that it doesn't shy away from the realities of civilization, like, uh, and specifically like a class system. So a good example of this was in one of the chapters I just read, uh, chapter 906, where you first see Marijoie, which is the kingdom of the celestial dragons, the uh, the world nobles. Yeah, and um, so there's uh, in one panel there's this large people mover that they call a travelator, and the people that are using it are from the lower kingdoms, and they're like, "Wow, this is so convenient! It's so cool!" Like, um, it's, you know, this just massive people mover like they have at the airport. But then, like two panels later, they show underground. 
they have a whole like army of slaves that are physically pulling the track on the travelator and that's the way that it works and one of the slaves is like right you know, save yeah. me or if not <laughs> yeah. please kill me yeah every anything to do with the world nobles is just like you know like it's hard to believe that oda doesn't have really strong you know like kind of like abolitionist views in it yeah abolitionist <laughs> views or something because everything to do with them is just like an insanely just like despicable caricature of everything that's wrong with uh class societies in the real world like yeah that's true like, even in like their I, I, depiction I've like they're like very, grotesque yeah. fat like in, like they look mm -hmm. like inbred or whatever they have like ridiculous yeah. styles and they just look like shit they look like the kind of person that you think of when you think of like you know a late habsburg prince or something yeah exactly like they're just i've i've read very few manga with quite mm -hmm. so like despicable uh like antagonist um oligarchs basically <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like he really he really puts in a lot of effort to make them as unlikable as possible yeah um but then there's a whole like subplot with the uh the don quixote family um which is like a, a world noble family that uh is apparently not like morally as corrupt they're you know they're one of their members decided to get rid of all his slaves and then move down to the the ordinary world on an island somewhere with his family um but then everybody there you know realized that he didn't have the support of the world government anymore and they could do whatever they want so they basically lynched his whole family yeah um it, and the only survivor was was his son uh Dolph Flamingo who went on to become one of the main antagonists that Luffy goes on to fight um, and one of the most like an internet oppressive people in the story yeah he becomes like a an international arms dealer kind of character yeah um running a giant weapons network between between all the islands and spurring on all these wars um and very interestingly too in, in the later chapters now um there was a celestial dragon also from that family who got stranded on fishman island who way back in a flashback um the former queen saved from being killed by the the inhabitants of the island when he was stranded there and um he was kind of ungrateful at the time but now that they turned up on uh now the fishmen turned up um up on uh mary oh, joy yeah. uh yeah uh he he actually ended up saving their butts when one of the mm -hmm. other world nobles tried to kidnap the Shirahoshi, the mermaid princess, by just beating the shit out of the other one because he's the only buddy. He's the only one who can do that without consequences. Right. Yeah, and uh, the fishman thing is is something that I forgot to put in here too. That w where yeah. they actually have like it's basically a you know racial caste system or like the equivalent of white supremacy in the story where um, humans are considered humans and fishmen who are. Um, you know, hybrid subhuman. between fish and humans are, yeah, they're yeah. considered subhuman and there's uh, some, something akin to Jim Crow um, yeah. in their society. Well, sim yeah, I mean, it's kind of like explicit, like fishmen are since they're stronger than humans and considered subhuman, they're most frequently taken as slaves by the world nobles yeah. um, and generally discriminated against everywhere they go. Yeah, um, and, and mermaids are fishmen too, so yeah yeah and uh there's the whole the whole plot with um that that goes on with uh fishman island with 
um, Fisher the Tiger Pirates. and the Sun Pirates is yeah. really, really interesting. Yeah. You get kind of like a, because they're, they're, they're sort of like that character type where, you know, the whole story he's telling with Fishman Island has a lot to do with, I think, has a lot of like relevance to, uh, like, at least if you're from the U.S., you know, like Black Liberation struggles um, in the sense of like this kind of like internal conflict and debate um, and a dialogue between uh, like pacifist factions, um, sort of like violent uh, separatist supremacist factions, and then sort of like a, a middle ground kind of faction, like Fisher Tigers group, who were like, we're not above using violence for self defense and liberating our people, but we're also not pacifists and we're not um, trying to rule over the humans either. Yeah, they were kind of like the the classic like black panther like Maoist, and then the yeah um like hody jones crew is more like you know black pessimists like black nationalist type where they're just like we're those motherfuckers are never going to think that we're equal to them so we just need to you know like kill kill them and and take power take kill them take them as slaves etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah 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 right. and then fisher tiger's whole crew is like you know we're we're going to go and use violence to liberate the humans or liberate fishmen and humans from slavery. So Fisher Tiger fucking climbs the entire red line up to Mary Joy and uh, does the first uh, major slave revolt <laughs> in yeah. history that we know of um, and brings a bunch of people out. Um, humans and fishmen liberates them and helps them join his crew. One really interesting connection with that is too is the character Koala, who's like a human kid who he rescues in one of those raids, um, frees from slavery and returns to her home, but uh, in the process ends up like leading to his death uh, when he tries to return them because oh, the, yeah. the Marines get him. But then she goes on to join the Revolutionary Army and become one of the highest ranking officers of it. Yeah, so is, that's another The thing Revolutionary Army is another great... Army. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're kind of what they say they are. <laughs> The, the yeah. Revolutionary Army as a whole, like, very still, like, kind of un, unexplained uh, faction in the whole One Piece world relative to all the other stuff. Yeah, I'm excited for them to get developed more. Yeah, they're led by Luffy's dad. Um, uh-huh. All we've ever seen of him is, like, the uh, as, as the leader of the Revolutionaries. No, we don't really know anything about his past. Um, well, he has face tattoos, so we know he's a SoundCloud rapper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. SoundCloud rapper... Probably has some sort of powers over wind. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then Luffy's like uh, sort of retconned in, uh, sworn adopted brother Sabo is like their second in command. And some of the, some of the other like main allies that Luffy meets end up turn out being like undercover agents for the revolutionaries like Kuma, who, who was, uh, I guess, so far, I think his backstory is revealed. He was a former king of an island. Then he was a revolutionary. Then he went under undercover as a uh, as a pirate warlord working for the world government. Um, and then he gave up his body to be turned into a government cyborg weapon. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, he's on some levels of infiltration that we can't even comprehend. I think. <laughs> yeah, it seems like they're implying that. He didn't do that willingly lately because they were talking yeah. about how they're ma- they made an example of him 
Um, right, he became a slave. Yeah. And uh, I, I almost wonder if he's supposed to be like Tolstoy or something like that, because he's, he's like, first of all, the robots are called pacifistas, and yeah. he's always carrying around a Bible. Yeah, and he's he's always described as being like a really gentle kind of kind person yeah and he probably has like one of the most uh overpowered devil fruits in the series too yeah <laughs> he, he just has the ability to push anything <laughs> and it can be anything as abstract from like firing uh compressed air blasts from his hands to being able to like push uh the pain out of somebody's body as, as a like giant bubble <laughs> <laughs> or being able to like just like basically uh push somebody anywhere in the world like when he yeah, like splits up Luffy's crew. Away. Yeah. Yeah. Um let's see, do I have anything else? Um I will just talk about real quick some of the uh the issues with One Piece. Uh the most glaring being that it really doesn't treat women well at all. <laughs> I mean this is a common thing in anime, but um it could definitely be off putting to any women who might be interested in um, starting One Piece, um, they definitely objectify women like crazy. You know, women are either like gross old ladies or, you know, hot hot broads with huge cans. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. They're, yeah, they're often portrayed as like, um, you know, helpless little girls. Even Even the strong ones like Robin and Nami often are put in situations where they're helpless little girls. Um, and th- some of the main characters creep on Nami and Robin like really, really hard. Um, I was watching um, one of the movies, uh, Zed, and Ugh, yeah. that one gets even worse <laughs> because they they turn back, like someone has a devil fruit power that can reverse something's age by 12 years. So they turn Nami into like a 12-year-old or whatever and Robin into an 18 year old and like all the men, like all of them are like so excited about this. They're like, Oh my God, they're 12 years younger. Holy shit. This is great. And it's just like, Oh God, yeah. what the <laughs> fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. The one piece Z movie is especially weird. I feel like it has some strange vibes to it. <laughs> yeah. One thing that bothered me was like, um, basically the villain of the movie is like trying to kill like, everyone in the new world which is i i don't know how many that would actually be but i'm guessing like tens of millions of people um just to kill the pirates that are there and like you know the the heroes beat him and then they're just like ah well what can you do they don't like hold it against him that he was trying to kill everyone in the new world like it's just like well uh i guess he redeemed himself sort of yeah yeah Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would say with uh, the misogyny in One Piece, it's definitely a thing. Um, and I would say it's it's it, yeah. The damsel in distress trope is a big issue, especially with like main characters who are supposed to be like pretty strong. Uh, it's gotten a little bit better with some of them over the years. Like I think uh, like with Nami in particular, her her like fighting ability has definitely gone up a lot. Um, yeah. But so has the skimpiness but, of her clothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's been getting better outfits lately, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole, like, after the time skiff outfit was just, like, kind of a joke. Yeah. Terrible. Um, 
She actually gets to wear a shirt now. (laughs) Isn't this like... It's um, dreadful. Like, am I the only one that finds it problematic that in order for a woman to be portrayed as, as a strong, powerful woman, she has to sort of conform to what most men would consider to be strong and powerful so like exactly that's yeah. totally another trope like the the strong strong female character yeah like now you were saying nami's been getting better uh like her fighting skills have improved and so on. and and at the end of the day that's that's like exactly the problem is that it's right. only viewed as um progress for women if they manage to progress in men's terms so like i would I say know, she's also me, though getting more competent in like non-fighting skills too like yeah like her nami definitely does not has, get enough increased over the the course of the yeah. story and that's nami definitely that does not get enough credit uh in general like from the fans or anybody just because like basically if she wasn't on the crew they wouldn't have a crew right <laughs> she's the navigator and like main uh responsible person in charge really yeah. so like Without her, they'd definitely all be lost or dead long, <laughs> long, long before. <laughs> yeah. Especially Zoro. <laughs> Especially Zoro. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. It, yeah, one of the interesting think... things I've noticed, too, with the the portrayal of women, too, is, like, the, the sort of, like, Oda has, like, this weird, like, kind of, like, stock, quote-unquote, like, hot female character mm-hmm. design he uses. And it's mainly only for main characters, like... When people are complaining about his like lack of creativity in female designs, it's mainly with uh, like lead role characters. But like for a lot of like supporting characters, he has like I think I would say like probably some of the most diverse, interesting, weird kind of like uh, just all over the map kind of like character designs for non-main character women, which is really strange. Yeah, the, I wish he brought some more of that to the main characters. The one, the woman on Smoker's crew, um, that's that's kind of who I think of there. Um, I can't remember her name. Oh, Tashigi. Yeah, the yeah, swords, yeah. The swordsman. Yeah. Except for when Smoker was in her body, and then it was back to the hot girl yeah. <laughs> character design. But um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it sounded like you were going to say something earlier, Peter. Um. Yeah, I was just going to say that the whole thing to me, I don't know. Um I've always I've always thought of it this way, that it's very Thatcher. Um as in Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Um where where they get to succeed the moment that they take on um men by basically being one of the boys. Yeah. Um you know Margaret Thatcher is considered to be one of the most powerful women in political history but it's because she did things like a man right uh, so uh, yeah that's that's all i was really gonna say i i think one one other exception maybe which isn't like it's not an exception as in like she's well done but an exception is in she doesn't follow the trope of like she's powerful because she's like a man is boa hancock who also has the, the hot girl design but she basically like She's realistic as a woman because she's conscious of her beauty. Like there's like this there's this thing that like men always think that uh there's all these like incredibly attractive women out there that are just like completely oblivious that they're hot which 
that does not exist at all. <laughs> um, but uh, Hancock is like supposed to be the most beautiful woman basically on the planet and she totally knows it and she uses that as a weapon in order to like um not only like stun people literally but also um you know kind of to uh manipulate you know men who are too dumbfounded by her looks to like see what's happening yeah i also sorry i i think that's also a very misogynistic trope Oh yeah, um, most definitely. I'm just saying it's exceptional because, compared to the rest. <laughs> oh yeah, I yeah, know. Fair enough. Um, and, and, and just to explain why I why I'm saying it's misogynistic is, you know, it's just as hurtful to women in general when men are depicted as dumb brutes who are uh, basically guided by thinking with their dick. Right. Um, like, I'm not that guy. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, and I, I've met maybe three or four of them my whole life, and they were dickhead, bastard, assholes. But most of the guys I've met in my life are, are, are decent human beings. And this depiction... It, it it sort of it creates that divide and strengthens that divide between men and women. So yeah, it's I interesting. And it, oh, finish finish. No no no, no 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 no. Carry on. <laughs> All right, I was gonna say it's interesting in shonen anime. Like a lot of times, it's the, like the male characters are portrayed as either insane perverts, uh, like you said, completely ruled by their dick, or they're like these weird sort of like completely asexual like oblivious um yeah you know single-minded characters like luffy goku all these sort of types who are like you know totally totally oblivious and just focused on like you know fighting and eating (laughs) yeah (laughs) um yeah like we talked about um in my hero academia mineta was like he's like the stand-in oh, for God. like all of the perverted characters uh, like he's all of them rolled into one and just like Jesus. to a completely insane level and then everyone else is the totally even though they're supposed to be teenagers <laughs> they're supposed to be teenagers and they're like totally asexual <laughs> like career-driven <laughs> dudes it's just like can't we find a balance <laughs> somewhere between yeah. the two <laughs> between being like a rapist and being like a fucking like dickless robot what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) i think the i think at the end of the day the the problem that anime in general faces is that they're not busy depicting real characters um uh, uh, like they're not trying to to depict um you know full full fleshed human beings that are uh diverse in their motivations and so on and so forth a, a lot of it does rely on caricatures and stereotypes yeah, yeah. it's especially the to... case in like shonen anime like there's more mature series that are definitely i would say good at like characterization and uh that sort of thing but shonen yeah, is typically I yeah <laughs> same towards a, like middle schoolers so yeah there's a series called be the beginning that yeah. I'm hoping we can cover in a future future episode, uh, Netflix anime, and um, I have to say the character depictions there are are very, very human. 
yeah. for the most part. Even even yeah, they the have non- normal human relationships in that show. <laughs> yeah, which is awesome. Yeah, um, but it's a rarity in anime, unfortunately. Yeah. Speaking of uh, problematic uh, characterization in One Piece, uh, I kind of want to talk for a little bit about like the uh, the Okama characters. Okama, you know them. Um, so like Bon Clay and. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yvonne. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> there's some. They're like always a source of frustration for me in One Piece because on one hand, uh, they're some of the most, I would say, like, problematic or, like, offensively depicted characters, but also, in typical One Piece fashion, are some of, like, you know, the ones that become, like, main or, like, supporting cast are also, like, some of the best characters, in my opinion, in terms of, like, uh, like, being awesome or, like, being well-developed as people or, like, really sympathetic. Yeah, yeah. Kind Kind of the breakdown is there. Okama is, like, basically a the Japanese version of like drag queens is sort yeah. of how I understand it. It's, it's different from transgender. Um, in it Japan seems like a and... mix between drag queen and like non-binary. Yeah. So it, it, they're, they're not seen as men, um, but they're also not like fully transgender women either. And so it's like these characters putting on some just like really like very bizarre sort of like, um, kind of like cross-dressing stuff like really one of the main ones clothes yeah one of the main ones like eva she's she's like one of the commanders of the revolutionary army um and it goes between calling her like she and he um yeah she has she's these, literally her, gender her fruit devil from fruit. her power yeah 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 <laughs> yeah her de- devil fruit power allows her to manipulate hormones and become a man or a woman or turn people into men and women so that's a whole uh interesting weird thing um but she's totally based off of um rocky horror picture show i would say yeah oh yeah i never realized that i've never seen that movie so (laughs) yeah yeah i never thought of that but yeah she looks she's got like the the red she's based off tim curry's character in that yeah yeah, the red thing and like the fishnet stockings and the yeah poofy curly hair yeah yeah and then bon clay dresses like like a swan ballet but like with a bowl cut yeah (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, these characters who are, like, basically presented as, like, gags a lot of the time, you know, I think that's pretty offensive um, and harmful. Yeah, especially but, during but as the, you, like, like two-year time skip and, uh, with uh, yeah, Sanji's yeah. training. He's, like, like yeah, running away that's from the them. Worst. He's like, oh, my God, I'm in it's hell right now. It's just so embarrassing. Yeah. It's, like, one of the things I don't want to show people about the series. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually skipped that whole part. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. watch <laughs> But, like, as you go on and, like, meet some of those characters, also they become, like, some of the most, like, interesting, badass, sympathetic uh, characters in the show. Like, people who are just, like, extreme. Like, the uh, the Okamas are some of the most, like, down-for-the-struggle kind of people. Like, all yeah. of them are, main, like, big supporters of the Revolutionary Army. They stage a... They stage the first ever prison uprising in uh, Impel Down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Bon and Clay like, is like one of the most redeemed people, yeah. I think, in the story. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that that's a that's a major source of like frustration with me. I wish uh they could be written better also, in addition to the women in the show. Yeah. Okay, so 
So I have, um, from the notes here, I have one last question on on one piece that will lead into our next section. And um, Ryan wrote this question saying, <laughs> is the Straw Hat Pirate Crew just um, the one piece version of an anarchist business? I wrote here like even if even if Luffy like really wanted to like smash the world government and the class system uh, he would have to like somehow build up enough power to take on the world government and the best way for him to do that would be I mean we haven't seen much of the revolutionary army so we don't know if they're substantially different or similar to pirate crews but you'd basically have to build up a pirate crew in order to yeah have the force to take on the world government and i i think anarchist business is kind of a similar situation where like if we want to um you know do like like a dual power take on the state sort of thing we need to build up political power and part of that requires having enough funding um in order to you know build and wield power and yeah i guess i guess kind of as an anarchist that. business they're sort of like a federation of cooperatives i guess <laughs> yeah. you could say um you know like co- uh, a federation of pirate cooperatives going and plundering treasure from the the, the rich <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and that's that's one thing that's definitely remarked on in the series it's kind of a shonen trope at this point but i feel like one piece does it better than most of like you know, characters remark. I think it was Mihawk who first uh, remarked that, like, Luffy's main ability, like, his main strength as a pirate isn't necessarily his fighting ability. He's one of the strongest out there now, but he almost never starts out that way. He gets beat all the time. Yeah. This is a little <laughs> digression. This is one of the things that makes, I think, One Piece work as such a long-running shonen is that it really manages to control its, like, power scaling issues. Um like Luffy and his crew are never just like so badass that they they have to invent a new like universe's strongest villain every arc just to keep <laughs> it interesting. Um, there's always like some complications, and it's always emphasized that just uh just like a strong fighter alone can't actually solve the problems that are going on. Um, yeah, it was remarked that like you know Luffy's strongest ability isn't his fighting skills; it's his ability to create allies. Um, right. So basically, everywhere he goes on their journey, every island he um, it, either purposefully or inadvertently ends up like you know helping people out um, and sort of converting people to become his allies or you know think fondly of him in some way or another. Uh, so you know he's liberated numerous islands from some sort of like tyrannical control, and now like the. Uh, the official governments of those islands sort of uh, secretly support him um, up to and including Fishman Island, which decided to, after he freed them, they decided to fly his flag as a symbol of uh, protection over their island where previously they had flown the Yonkos flag. Um, And then up to like Dressrosa where he gets all these um, pirate crews pledging to become part of his grand fleet. Um, even though he refuses to have a, you know, like hierarchical authority over them. Right. So, um, yeah, it's like Lu- Luffy's and sort of like at the end of the uh, the whole Cake Island arc where he's he clashes with Big Mom and defeats Katakuri. Uh, it's like, you know, he's declared as the fifth emperor 
but it's not because he was able to defeat another emperor like Big Mom or somebody. It's uh, because he was able to like bring together all these like ridiculously diverse forces in an alliance. The uh, who like hated each like, other the, before. Yeah, yeah. To to fight her and like ha- then suddenly it comes out that he has all these extremely powerful subordinates all over the world doing stuff um, in the paper and. Uh, you know, he brings together the uh, awesomely named like pirate ninja samurai mink alliance. Yeah. So we need a real Luffy to make the tankies and anarchists get along <laughs> enough to. Right. Yeah. Luffy. Luffy's ability is uh, alliance building, and he doesn't even really try. He does it naturally. Yeah. And it's partially because he's, I think, kind of just so like blunt and incompetent. A lot of people. Uh, either like the the bad guys, the opportunists want to join his alliance so that they can take uh, take advantage of his stupidity, um, which almost always backfires on them because his stupidity ends up taking advantage of them. <laughs> uh, like with uh, the fire tank pirates and beige, uh, or law even, uh, <laughs> or um, they they see him and they're like, "Wow, this guy's an idiot. We should help him." <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so our next topic for this episode is anarchist business. Um, Reed is somewhat known amongst our group for saying that um, more anarchists should be getting MBAs. Uh, do you want to <laughs> talk about that a little bit? Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think you kind of explained it a little bit just back there um, in the sense that, like, we're trying to take down capitalism, yeah? So... Um, we got to understand how capitalism works. Y'all have done a lot of research on that with your like capitalist power stuff. Mm. Um, I'm less knowledgeable about that, but I've done a lot of, um, you know, studying of like cooperatives and some of the the theory behind that is like how they can be used as a tool for, um, you know, basically like out competing capitalism in some, some senses, you know, maybe it's a bit idealistic, but, it's, I think it's something that's necessary is like most revolutionary movements out there that have made a, especially like libertarian socialist ones that have made a dent have had some form of uh, alternative economic arrangements to build themselves up. And some of the more interesting like contemporary experiments in the U.S. are explicitly based around that strategy, like Cooperation Jackson over in Mississippi um, is you know, basically pursuing like a black working class liberation agenda through the creation of a cooperative federation in the South and um, especially adopt like being early adopters of, um, you know, more high tech automated uh, digital fabrication technologies. You know, their, their sort of hypothesis with that being that they're sort of contributing to the, um, kind of like degradation of price formation by uh, uh, basically like decreasing the marginal cost of production through like 3D printing and other fabrication and like digital technology um, applications. So yeah, I think it's really important for uh, anarchists and revolutionaries to understand how that stuff works and find points of intervention where we can actually, um, you know, actually sort of like drive a wedge in or even in some cases outcompete um, applications of capitalist logic. Another one I'm really interested in is um, 
ways that we can intervene in disaster capitalism, as like Naomi Klein writes right. about in the Shock yeah. Doctrine and some other books. That's that's one I've been doing a lot of thinking about. Is is there a disaster capitalism basically being the way that uh, private companies in the state go into areas that have been struck by natural disaster and use the disruption that they create in the local markets to impose a new like economic logic, you know, displacing traditional economies and building hotels and basically everything that's going on in Puerto Rico right now. Um, yeah, if the social order example. gets disrupted, there's going to be someone there to rebuild it. And right, and I think it's you know, the capitalists who are using it to create the most exploitative form possible. Right. So this this would be a great thing for an anarchist MBA to think about is like, how do we get in a good position where when stuff like that goes down, we can also move on that that uh, disruption in a way that supports uh, the autonomy and like the rebuilding of those communities under their own um, under their own power. Like what kind of resources can we leverage in order to block or at least like compete with the disaster capitalist forces and the vultures that are kind of like moving in on those zones. Right. So my, my like um, really um, I guess terse argument in, in favor of why we should be starting businesses is it's a fact of life that we need money to do any kind of meaningful political work. Even like, even if, even if you think that electoral politics is pointless and that we just need to uh, build for the revolution, you need money to to do like whatever, you know, whether it's to finance your organization or just to continue living your life. Um, so if the choice is between being completely dependent on capitalist employers and, and wages in order to get that money or organizing on your own and getting it by other means, it seems like the latter is, is clearly better. So if we, if the choice is between getting money from wages and getting money from like organizations that we create ourselves, I, I think there's no contest that getting money from wages is not as good. Yeah. 100% in agreement. And I'd, I would much rather contribute um, to a, a collective that is working on setting up people's assemblies and setting up um, uh, local cooperatives, then give my money to um, Apple. Yeah. Or uh, like any of the big dominant capital um, businesses. Yeah. One of my, one of my favorite, uh, just on that little note, a little digression, one of my favorite um, examples of that sort of thing or one of the more like creative, funky examples I've researched in the past year has been uh, a group in Spain called the Catalan Integral Cooperative. Um, they're just hilarious. They're they're a bit like a pirate crew in some <laughs> senses, like because uh, they are a collective, um, like co and their their purpose is to kind of like organize and funnel money into other cooperative and like collectivist ventures. And the way that they actually make the majority of their income is through uh, basically tax loopholes. They exploit tax loopholes in Spanish nice. self-employment law uh, <laughs> to make money. <laughs> and then they just funnel most of that money towards um, like like hacker spaces and land projects and all these other initiatives that they support. Um, and then 
sort of have a uh, participatory budgeting process for uh, kind of creating like basic income uh, on a needs basis for their like uh, membership who do most of the like organizing and administrative work. And then they, they get all their money by basically providing a tax write-off for self-employed people in Spain um, that's a lot cheaper for them because being self-employed in Spain or really anywhere is a big headache in terms of taxes. So people right. can join their like collective shell corporations that they create in order to get really cheap self-employment taxes. <laughs> and then they, they basically like take a cut of that tax break <laughs> to fund a bunch of like wacky leftist shit. Um, That's so a very cool model. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, uh, Peter just messaged me. He says he has to leave in five minutes. So Peter, is there anything you want to say, um, before you go on this topic? Um, well, I, I'm currently in the process of, um, managing one business and starting several more and, the the entire premise behind one of the businesses that we're starting is to enable um, small collectives to to set up as a kind of um, federation of, of worker co-ops. Nice. Um, not that we're actually doing the work for them, but we're uh, uh, we're kind of providing creating... infrastructure. Well, it's not so much the infrastructure as it is the networking capabilities. The cool. the the guy that I work for is a very high-ranking uh, person here in uh, uh, in Bahrain, and um, throughout his life, obviously, he has amassed a, a vast network of of connections um, throughout various endeavors, and. We, we sort of sat back one night and went, well, you know, you, uh, we've got all these connections that we can use to, to make a fat load of money. Or what we could do is we could set it up so that um, we empower people to, to yeah. uh, achieve something that is valuable to the community and sustainable in the long run. Because at the moment, let's face it, being anarchist basically is almost directly saying that you're anti-capitalist and yeah. i mean obviously not if you're really all... anarchist <laughs> yeah if you're yeah. really anarchist um and so a lot of anarchists don't understand the capital system properly because they've avoided it their whole life they've avoided uh taking jobs that give them good pay they've avoided uh, getting into business because they view it as participating in uh, a horrible system but at the end of the day um while i don't think that we need to become part of a system and destroy it from the inside i don't think that it's possible to build dual power um if you're not if you're not building power right. yeah so um yeah that's that's my ten cents. <laughs> yeah, I agree a lot, and like I think that's a really undervalued uh, part of all this. Is like, uh, you know, like people are very eager to start the productive process, but it's also really important to have like networking and supportive um, organizations because most people it's really complicated and don't know how to start this sort of thing. Um, anything from like a small 
local cooperative to like a big, you know, you know, whatever venture. Um, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, and and not just that, you know. Um, I I I wish I knew someone who was capable of doing this kind of research. Um, there have been several studies that have shown that capitalist businesses um, that fail uh, is mostly due to random stuff that happens. But I don't believe this. Uh, I, I realize there's empirical research that sort of <laughs> contradicts me. But um, I, I, I think that what is misunderstood here is that a lot of capitalism has to do with who do you know? Yeah. Uh, mm. the, uh, you know, if you know someone in power, they can pull strings that change things dramatically. Um, if I yeah, the banks got at, a, tr a trillion dollars from the government, even though they failed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, like, um, I, uh, there's there's another small business owner here on the island who, because he doesn't have. Um, the kind of connections that my boss does, he, he's he got a completely different mentality for how he goes about his business. Whereas uh, 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 where there are obstacles and red tape for him, um, my boss doesn't even think about it. He, he knows <laughs> yeah. the people that can uh, uh, change all of that with a simple phone call. And this is the thing: is unless you build networks of power, you're you're always going to be stuck as the the eighty percent of um, new startups that fail within five yeah. years. And that's that's like really interesting for like collective economic ventures too, because you know the research on them does show that they fail uh, significantly less often than ordinary firms. Um, but they face much, much more uh, barriers to capitalization, which, you know, things like just like simple networking and uh, power connections could really, um, you know, really address, I think, like kind of what you're working on there. Yeah, awesome. Okay, guys, I have to get going. Gotta go. All right, man. Talk to you later. Talk later. You later. Cheers. All right, so... Um... The the next thing on the on the why or how I guess that I that I wanted to talk about was um, you know most of the time when leftists talk about um, you know starting businesses it's let's start a, f a fresh business from scratch and like yeah. make something new and and that kind of thing but what about like what, what do you have any opinions on like doing like leveraged buyouts or buyouts of existing businesses as in like uh you know with the money that you have acquiring a business and making it part of your organization or even getting credit from a bank um you know maybe a regular commercial bank or a, a like a leftist municipal bank um to yeah. buy businesses i think i think that is a really like under sort of like explored option by a lot of especially like left ideologically motivated cooperative thinkers um yeah we because we, we want to start something new that's pure from scratch you know so that it's all perfectly set up and whatnot and when we do work at an existing firm it's like you know we're workers how the hell are we ever gonna have money to buy this shit from you know the billionaires that own it 
but this is actually kind of an interesting new um new like i guess marketing angle that some people in the cooperative movement in the states have started to emphasize is um i forget the stats exactly but you know really really significant portion of um businesses out there are at risk of having kind of like an inheritance crisis or a succession crisis yeah. um, where the owners are aging out with nobody to replace them. And so the co-op movement is really making a big push to um, basically like incentivize business owners that want to retire or are dying, um, you know, or, <laughs> or being, you know, uh, killed in an angry mob or something, um, <laughs> uh, incentivizing them to sell the company to their employees um, as, as a cooperative or collective venture, um, which is really interesting. There's, a, there's like some new like lobbying initiative kind of trying to be like, a, they're basically creating like model bills kind of in the ALEC style going around uh -huh. to different state legislatures um, with a model couple of like model bills that they're trying to introduce in uh, in in states to basically provide like tax incentives um and other incentives for business owners to sell to their employees as cooperatives or form uh esops employee stock option uh i forget the p stands for but <laughs> um <laughs> basically yeah they're 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 not quite cooperatives in the sense they're not um internally democratic but they do have uh equal employee equity so they they can be seen as like kind of a stepping stone to uh to a cooperative structure right like while while the business owner still owns the place they can transition it to an esop and then after they pass it on it can become a cooperative i think i think the group doing that is called democratize the enterprise if you're interested in it if anyone's interested in looking into that yeah i'll have to i'll, I'll have to put that in the show notes they were on a um, I think they were on Richard Wolf's uh, program a few okay. months ago is where I heard about Democratize. them. I'm like an old guy. I write things down on paper, so I'm writing it down on paper. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you already started touching on this a little bit, but um, how, how do you think a leftist or anarchist should structure their business? So there's a question of like worker ownership versus management, uh, profit sharing versus employment. Um, you know, a business based on profit sharing might like be able to charge lower prices to customers. Um, but like, you know, say a, like a normal, like uh, publicly traded company with employees probably would have a much easier time raising capital, not just because, you know, anyone can put their money in on it, but also just because that like the structures of society are already geared towards those types of businesses being able to um, accrue the most wealth. Yeah. From what I've learned so far studying this kind of stuff and talking to people in the co cooperative and solidarity economy movement is, well, for one thing, it's it's really highly contextual. Like, the culture that you're, like, working with is really important. Like, the culture mm -hmm. of employees at a particular firm or in a region um, is really important in terms of, like, how it's going to work. So, you know... Um, uh, you know, like for like a highly democratic collective kind of environment to function, people really have to be like committed to making it function. It won't just like happen on its own. Right. Um, so if people aren't have, like motivated by the cause, 
it doesn't yeah work exactly well. yeah so you know it's difficult like one of my uh friends and teachers here worked at like a a taxi cab drivers worker cooperative in madison wisconsin mm-hmm for like 20 years and you know so he's sort of seen all of the different dynamics that can arise like some people are in it because they like the cooperative and being involved in everything some people like it just because it pays better and has benefits um you know you experience all the same difficult dynamics of management and um you know kind of grift and greed and all that sort of thing that you experience in a regular firm in a cooperative um, cause it's full of people, uh, <laughs> except it's just, the load is just a bit more distributed in terms of like who can act on those things and like what impact it has on the collective whole. Yeah. And, uh, and like, um, with, with Mondragon, which is probably the most famous cooperative, um, uh, they have like different, different types of members. So like, uh, if I remember correctly, some of them, some of the members are, are like worker owners, and yeah. some are maybe some are worker managers, but then there's they have just like regular employees. And I remember when yeah, I, read I think this, it's about I was in it's about like you know, fifty to sixty percent are uh, owners. I think. Okay. Yeah. And when I read about this, like instinctively, I was just like, "Ooh, that's like isn't that like a class system basically?" But um, I, I guess with the realities of some people just you know not caring enough about you know the the cause you know fighting for the cause to. Um, maybe be an effective like worker manager. Um, sometimes the, it's not such a bad thing. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's 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 less complicated than like oh, owner good, non-owner bad. Right. Because um, you know, for a lot of people, people have different interests. Um, like I know one thing that I've experienced with people in the states is a lot of workers, including myself. You know, are are very sort of like nervous or just like unsure about the idea of ownership or like the responsibility of yeah. having equity in something and like the commitment we're very conditioned by like the gig economy i think <laughs> these days where it's like well if this what if it sucks i just want to leave i don't want to be all bought into this thing yeah get a, i just want to get another crappy job somewhere else that's what we're used to doing yeah so one it's, of my it's, favorite it, small it, business owner arguments is like oh uh so you, you're saying that i'm exploiting my employees well uh, what if my business is operating at a loss? I'm actually still paying them money, and and I'm I'm taking a loss. So like, how is that exploitative? Are you saying they're exploiting me? <laughs> yeah. So you know that 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 kind of th- basically the fact that uh, I th- <laughs> I think once you sort of like lift the veil on the actual competency of businesses to operate according to their own principles, you know, because once you actually like look into it, it's like most businesses aren't profitable and aren't sustaining themselves really except by like you know grift and handouts uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) um it becomes a lot scarier to think of like trying to own that collectively with a bunch of people (laughs) right um thankfully co-ops tend to have a better track record on that sort of thing um in terms of like financial sustainability since they're usually like member equity financed um and all that but yeah it's still it still uh makes people nervous i think yeah and, um, so it's hard to get people to commit. Yeah. So something that we've talked about on the show before is how, um, in the like in the traditional Marxist understanding of what are the problems with capitalism, there's a big focus on 
um, capitalist exploitation where um, your your labor produces you know a hundred dollars, but your boss you know takes like eighty dollars of that and gives you twenty dollars an hour, um, and that's that's viewed as like one of the the big problems. But uh, one thing that we've pointed out is an even bigger problem than that really is the fact that um, if you're working under an employment contract, you are essentially a like a rented slave. You're selling your time um, and your boss through the employment contract owns your time and is able to just make you do whatever they want you to do. And so I think for a business that a leftist or anarchist would, would create, um, there is something of a middle ground where you could be making a wage uh, or, you know, paid, paid as a non owning employee of the, of the business, but you're not, you know, like you aren't giving up your, any of your inalienable rights through an employment contract. And Mm -hmm. so it's still a much better situation than like McDonald's where you're forced to do whatever they want you to do and you have to wear what they want you to wear, say what they want you to say. And you're basically just, you know, an, an agent of the McDonald's corporation. Yeah, I've 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 worked a lot of times, even currently, as sort of like a temp in a lot of different industries, a lot of labor, just like kind of like hard labor, pick something up, put it down somewhere else, kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I always thought it would be interesting to have sort of like a a temp cooperative dispatch kind of agency, because on one hand, it really sucks because you don't get a lot of say over you know like your your rights and pay at whatever given job you're doing um, at the time. Um, and a lot of times the temp agency takes a pretty big cut of what you ought to be paid. Um, but I do really like kind of the, uh, I like being in, in terms of like <laughs> being conditioned to the uh, gig economy. I like the flexibility of it. Like, Oh, this job sucks. I'm gone. Uh, <laughs> you know, no contract, no nothing. Yeah. Um, or I can come in this day, but I can't come in this day. Sorry, uh, <laughs> to do this work. Uh, if you need, if there is like a, temp cooperative where you would be a member of it and get dispatched to various jobs but on on a very like non-coercive basis you know you're not subject to the uh uh rental contract basically where you're just like "Ah, i can work today i need some money hey what's going on you know yeah i have a lot of friends that are musicians and one of the problems they always have with finding income is that they need to get a job that allows them to just with not always with a lot of notice take you know a week or two off to go on tour um so a lot yeah, of them work, yeah. at, work at coffee shops I because that's that one of the too. jobs where like you don't have to be there like for a continuous you know month or whatever you can you can two weeks yeah. out be like yeah i can't go in this week like bye <laughs> and that's that's sort of like the uh the flip side of the gig economy it's the part right. that like it's capitalist boosters like to emphasize is like, Oh, you have so much freedom now you can do whatever you can live your life, you know? Um, but well, you know, but it has the dark side of like, well, you can live your life in utter precarity, never knowing where your next source of income will be. Um, that, that like a, a collectively owned kind of like version of that could be really interesting. Cause you know, between, cause the profits of the, uh, the agency as a whole could go towards providing like a basic stipended income for its members right, in between yeah. gigs or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We need to learn like if, amortization. If, if Uber was run, 
yeah if like uber was run as a cooperative or something the massive you know like kind of like well i guess they don't really make profits but if they did make profits uh, <laughs> uh the profits would uh go to like supporting the drivers in between gigs or when they have to take time off and that sort of thing so they're not just totally dependent on yeah you're not only uh, making money work, when you're working driving. themselves to death yeah yeah um so we've already talked about this a little bit um but we'll be explicit about it how ethical is it for an anarchist to run a business so like obviously certain businesses are more ethical than others you know we wouldn't want a i don't think we would want an anarchist lockheed martin um <laughs> but for now uh, like let's focus on just the like the ownership of a business itself like um you know if if someone is like a a sole proprietor do you think that's unethical like do we do we really need um our businesses to be uh like based on a cooperative or profit sharing model i think this could it, just it, be a yes it, question it, it depends <laughs> um because you know it's like how how leftists think of like employment versus how ordinary people think of it can be pretty different like i think most people who don't have an ideological um, angle on things are like there's shitty bosses and there's good bosses i'd rather mm -hmm. work for a good boss you know yeah um so i think that in, in terms of like sole proprietorship that's the main issue is like are you an asshole are you like <laughs> a sexual predator or a you know a jerk in general or like you know some sort of person who because you're you, you have the responsibility of being put in a position of power over other people and that's that's definitely a huge red flag for anarchists in general um so i would say you know if you're in that situation you ought to be finding ways to like restrain your ability to arbitrarily wield your power for evil um yeah <laughs> don't sexually harass your female employees <laughs> Yeah, and like I think, even even farther, like uh, if you're in that position, it would probably behoove you to find like structural things you can build into your ownership that would constrain you from abusing your power. Yeah, because even you know, yeah, uh, good even good people who are confident about their ability to not abuse their power, or I think it's like negatively correlated with your uh, confidence that you won't abuse it, that you will abuse it. <laughs> yeah um, um so <laughs> yeah uh so another thing that we talk about on the show is how um in marxism capitalism is is viewed as control over production but um through the capitalist power lens that we use um capitalism is more uh control over distribution so obviously there is uh quite a lot of um there's there's like a range of things that capitalism could be producing, but um, to a large extent, you know, there's there's stuff that's just going to be produced whether or not, um, you know, we have any say in it. So, like, what do you think of the ethics of having a, a like an anarchist like pesticide company? Like, is that is it unethical to do that? Um, yeah, I guess that's that's mm. the question. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of like non-anarchist cooperative ventures that do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like some some cooperatives are formed out of an ideological uh, motivation, and some are just formed out of like a 
sort of like purely a kind of like pragmatic economic consideration, like Mm -hmm. cooperatives between farmers or other producers, for example, um, operate pretty much the same as any old business, but they have, you know, different ownership structure because it was advantageous in whatever market they were operating in. Um, Yeah. So I guess the question is like, how, how much do you have to change, uh, like the the material reality beyond just um you know putting ownership in the hands of people who aren't reactionary psychopaths <laughs> yeah i think um you know I, I to the extent that people still need pesticides to do stuff i guess they still need to be produced but i'm not sure that's something that we should necessarily be focusing on like yeah if anarchists are going to go getting into business I think the main consideration should be like, uh, you know, beyond like how, how this provides a livelihood for me and my, you know, uh, my comrades here. Um, the, I think the second consideration should be, uh, you know, how does this um, intervene in the system? Like, how are we kind of like causing some sort of disruption in the market system? Um towards our own goals are you know are we driving down uh or like interfering with price formation on this industry or are mm-hmm. we um are we sort of subsidizing the rollout of some important new technology so i think i think it is important that the uh the actual production of industries that anarchists get into are ethically oriented mm-hmm. um just because i think in order to like roll out a lot of um, new technologies and products, um, they need to sort of be subsidized by um, an ethical motivation or ideology beyond uh, profitability. Yeah, just because they're it's it's such an uphill battle. It would be it's hard for people without that motivation to to kind of like stick with it and make it happen in terms of like right. renewable energy or any of this other stuff. You know. Yeah, because then like the other side of it is like uh, you know. People who are not even, you know, uh, business organizers, who, people who are just employed, there's a certain level of, you know, what can you really do? The system is so powerful that, you know, sometimes you have to take an unethical job and, you know, are you really going to, um, you know, say that someone is unethical for, um, for doing that when they, they have to make money to survive or whatever. Um, but yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a different consideration between there's, it's a bit different, uh, sort of degree of responsibility when you're considering between, uh, Oh, I'm just taking this job to survive or I'm starting this business right, <laughs> and right. supporting it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a whole different level of things. Yeah. And then the last one I had in this, um, topic is uh like selling to consumers versus selling to other businesses so like if you're making a product that you're selling to consumers that that means you're mainly getting your money from the working class um whereas if you're selling to other businesses that means you're mainly getting your money from capital so like there is the like on one hand if you're getting your money from capital it's like you're providing from them or you're beholden to their needs but then on the other hand, if you if you only get your money from the working class, then the most uh, money you could possibly control is 
the amount of money that the working class has, which is the minority of it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good question because both of those are important and both of them are problematic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, like I remember like an anecdote I was told about uh, Mondragon from people there was like uh, it was like they were they were manufacturing parts for a major like car company and so that uh in in one of their cooperatives in Spain but then that car company was like we're building a factory in Mexico if you want to keep supplying parts to us you're also moving your factory you know like half mile down the road from our new factory in Mexico right now or you're losing the contract Oof. um yeah <laughs> um, so they had to like on the fly set up this Mondragon factory in Mexico and uh you know employ um, non-cooperative members there, which is sort of how they're one of the the main like growths of their non-member uh, ownership has been sort of being forced to shift manufacturing to more like globalization-friendly locations. Yeah, yeah, that's something that happened at the company that I work for. Um, we had this very large contract that was um, responsible for you know, the bulk of the revenue in, in my division and um, they like the, the contract got severely cut thanks to the Trump administration. And so they had to lay off like 20 people <laughs> or something like that. Like we, we went to, we went from like a 30 person team to a six person team. Um, and yeah, that's, that's one of the issues with selling to um, businesses or, or government or large organizations is, that money could just evaporate if um, some political event happens within that organization or if they, you know, change what they want you to do for them, they can just say, well, that money's gone now. And then you're really out of luck. <laughs> yeah. And I think this question really points to what I think is one of the most uh, important principles of like leftist business, cooperative business, whatever you want to call it. Um, like the, uh, basically the ability of, confederation between between firms yeah um is really really sort of i think like the key to kind of like unlocking the competitive potential of um anarchist business <laughs> leftist anarchist business um like that's that's the main reason that the mondragon uh federation is as powerful as it is now um and it's not even that powerful on the world right. stage it's <laughs> just a you know regional economic powerhouse in spain like seventh largest company in spain or whatever yeah. uh, uh but I, and i think uh what people from mondragon have said is like the issue that they've been struggling with in the past sort of 20 years of globalization is how do they um how do they extend their principle of like federation and ownership internationally it's something they haven't figured out yet most of their overseas employees are not members for example They've been doing some experiments with like the uh, steelworkers union in the United States to set up union cooperatives here that are connected to Mondragon. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's that principle of federation because um, it, it's what allows, and I think it goes to the question of um, selling to businesses or selling to consumers. I think selling to selling to government would be a third important yeah, one to yeah, consider. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah, especially being a government, government contractor. Government can generally create money, so 
yeah they're not they're even less limited by how much they can spend um, right and i think that's the advantage that um collective firms would have is like they can actually sell to all of those and you can you know if you build up the sort of ecosystem of ownership you're able to potentially like control supply chains in a sense where resources are distributed and reallocated between all three sort of customer bases um like for example in a in a cooperative federation like mondragon when a firm shuts down or has to downsize due to market pressures instead of laying off all the all the uh members they can uh be supported with um you know with money in the interim period and found uh found new jobs in a different firm in the network without having to be uh kind of let loose and on their own like that yeah. that was one thing happened when several like mondragon firms had to close is all of the employees were found new jobs at different uh factories or businesses in the network yeah another thing um that i think could be an obstacle um and this is probably going to slowly go away Uh, like under the trump administration it 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 is for sure um i don't really think the democrats are going to do that well uh in the next election so i I think it's going to continue but uh antitrust law um is another thing like if we're going for federations um, like the the more the businesses uh, that we start collude with one another, and I'm not using that as like a negative term, just like work together, you know. Um, yeah. The the more subject they could be to um, being attacked with antitrust law, especially if you know if we're actually like if we get any kind of profile and capitalists take notice, then they could cynically wield antitrust law against. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually historically a major issue for the cooperative movement around the turn of the century like when the uh cuz like when when the cooperative movement got established in the US it was it was actually part of the original like socialist and labor movement before kind of the um like the the the, the more like marxist movement mm-hmm. um and anarchist movement brought by immigrants kind of got started um it was like based in like the Knights of Labor and these really old school and like the Grange, these really old school, like, so like populist labor organism. Yeah. Populist socialism, uh, was where the cooperative movement in the U S started. And right, right around that time, um, they did experience that exact same problem that you're describing. Basically, uh, cooperatives were barred from undertaking interstate commerce, um, directly by, uh, capitalist businesses lobbying against them um yeah <laughs> and so it was a huge hindrance to them until uh, i forget when but eventually those laws were repealed and they were able to do interstate commerce like any other business but yeah like rail like rail lines were refusing to uh transport their products uh all sorts of crazy stuff so i think that's another thing that we have to be thinking about too in in, in our uh heretical anarcho-reformist agenda um, <laughs> is uh, convincing all those uh, democratic socialist politicians that we keep electing these days um, to introduce co-op-friendly legislation. And it, I think it's a very doable thing for them because they can introduce it under the guise of like business-friendly agenda, yada, yada, yada. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think a, some it's of a very, are, are very doable thing that, that they can sneak in there. 
Yeah, some, <laughs> I, I think some of them are more open to that too because, like, like Lee Carter, the he's yeah. a Dem socialist that I helped elect in uh, Manassas. Um, whenever people ask him, like about socialism he's just like well socialism is just workplace democracy so it's like yeah well, he's a real this one. guy's definitely on board yeah. for <laughs> creating yeah. better laws for co-ops <laughs> yeah and, and we're, i think like that democratize the enterprise and some other groups are just kind of like getting started on a new cooperative friendly like legislative agenda that stuff really needs to be boosted like you know if you've yeah. got lobbying skills free time trying to get um various like state representatives or even federal ones to introduce that stuff could yeah. be a huge boost to this whole thing. Yeah. So we need anarchist lobbyists, anarchist CEOs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anarchist politicians. Yeah, very, very heretical. I, I, I'm fully <laughs> expecting to be excommunicated uh, post haste. Yeah, we we're done after this episode. This episode. We're out. <laughs> uh, all right, Reed. Did okay, you have anything you wanted in... to add? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would just tag on the thing that i'm involved in right now that i think is kind of interesting is um i think people also ought to be looking at establishing like um various sort of like utility cooperatives and public Mm. service cooperatives um so right now i'm i'm working on a project here in olympia to build a um basically a mesh net like internet isp Oh yeah, I forgot for about those, that. <laughs> yeah, for so so for people who don't know, that's um, a form of internet provision where it's a distributed kind of like active and adaptive network between various antennas, um, backhauled internet connections, and basic Wi-Fi routers on rooftops and in people's homes. Yeah, it's kind of like a giant feed. Wi-Fi network. Yeah, it's like a giant free Wi-Fi network, um, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Um, so our plan is to try to like disrupt and displace the uh, the Comcast model here. It's part of a public internet research group we started with the DSA here um, that I've been spearheading, um, and it's actually going quite well. I think we can do it. We just put up our first antenna yesterday, um, so I think people ought to be looking at that sort of thing. Um, and it's it's really interesting too because we we're being like supported by basically like an anarchist business called Althea, which is like a tech firm that is supported by a bunch of weird like crypto money investment shit. <laughs> um, it's, it's a whole thing. But they, the reason that we're working with them is because they've created an act like a pretty, because of that, their funding and so on, they've been able to create a pretty tight like software, firmware infrastructure system that um, small groups in towns without a lot of like uh tech hacker people with time to kill can build relatively easily with a small volunteer base. Um, and so we're, we're still prototyping, but looking to incorporate as a cooperative, probably some sort of like multi-stakeholder kind of arrangement where there's like worker self-management for the employees, as well as like community governance on an elected board. Um, but one of the reasons I think that kind of thing is really interesting, especially in terms of utilities, uh, it's kind of based on... So uh, a couple months ago, I met and talked to some folks from Nicaragua. Our, our city has a sister city relationship with a town down there and brings people up and sends a delegation every year. 
I mean, these people are like old school, like OG Sandinista revolutionaries <laughs> um, who now are like part of various like economic development programs. Uh-huh. And so uh, part of the Sandinista program, particularly when they're in their more uh, radical phase before sort of the Ortega neoliberal socialism government got in there, um, and particularly during the counter-revolution against them, was forming various cooperatives. Um, like most of the transit workers in the country are part of a cooperative. Much of the agriculture is in like extremely collectivized democratic worker farmer cooperatives. Um, and what these guys were telling me was like uh, they those cooperatives were a major major source like site of resistance during the counter revolution with the contras and all that. Um, because they were a place where people were accustomed to practicing democracy and collective activity. And so they were a major target for the Contras. And so this guy at the time was part of one of the militias defending the agricultural cooperatives from the Contras. Um, it's this whole crazy story. Yeah, but basically really the point he, the point he was trying to make is like a really interesting role that the co-ops played in like basically preserving the revolution there against uh, the Contras and the counter-revolution was that um, they retain like a socialistic, communistic, and like collective organizational structure while also kind of being defended by private property rights. So when <laughs> the, the the right-wing government got into power and was, you know, uh, hell-bent on selling off every pu- state-owned uh, company and privatizing it, they couldn't privatize the cooperatives because they were already private. Um <laughs> And so they they sort of like kept the flame alive for socialism and like the revival of the Sandinista movement um, there <laughs> through uh, leveraging like neoliberal logic and private private property rights uh, and being able to sort of exist in the face of uh, exist in the face of um, neoliberal uh, privatization schemes. <laughs> so that's, well, I think that's kind that of an interesting nice all, lesson I, for. That sounds nice and all, but I think you're really just a liberal, and the only way to really defend the revolution is to take over the state and uh, create massive bloodbaths uh, to purge yeah. everyone that's against us. So I don't yeah. know about all that. <laughs> Leninism is just social democracy with more bloodbaths, really. Because <laughs> in the end, that's like the issue is like you get into state power and you create uh, state corporations. Well, as soon as somebody else gets into power, bye bye. Yeah, uh, it's the state Obama ownership. administration problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's like it's important to sort of create like a third sector outside of the uh, private economy and the state economy that can actually have some self-sustainability and independence. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it was an interesting anecdote in terms of like uh, people like all these new like socialists in the U.S. ought to be thinking about this sort of thing um, and thinking about how to take industries instead of like pushing for like municipally owned broadband or, you know, all these other sort of like public corporations, um, I think we ought to be thinking about um, a different option where a new government can't simply sell them off as part of an austerity package. Yeah. All right, Reed. uh, Thanks for coming on. Uh, This is a really interesting conversation. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Enjoyed finally being able to talk about one piece on the show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have, uh, do you want to like plug your Twitter or your Facebook or anything? Uh, yeah, Twitter. What am I? Uh, Wingles. 
Wingles underscore R on Twitter, and I guess everybody on uh, left Twitter is like running away to Mastodon now. So I'm just Wingles. Ah, that's on not gonna happen. Mastodon. <laughs> a bunch of the a bunch of the big accounts move. So who knows? Oh well, we'll see. Um, yeah. All right, man. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah. If you enjoyed listening to this show, if you've never listened before, uh, we have a website, postscarcitymagazine.com. It has all of our old episodes. You can find them by tag. Um, it also has the post-scarcity anarchism uh, zine. Uh, I have not worked on that in a long time. I don't know if I'm going to get back to it because the podcast takes up a lot of time. Um, but uh, we also have we have a Twitter. It's uh, at NeighborSciPod. Um, we're on Facebook and Instagram as NeighborScience. Um, we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash neighbor science. Um, so occasionally I put a bunch of outtakes up there. Um, I'll have an extra 30 minutes at least of audio from this show that I'll be putting up there. So, um, if you donate a dollar or more, then you can listen to that. Um, I think that's everything. Uh, if you enjoyed it, give us a rating on iTunes so that, uh, normies can listen to us too. (laughs) Uh, Gotta love the normies. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Bye.